1: Hello everybody and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem. Fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Today's topic is all about difficult cases and specifically difficult cases related to gastrointestinal issues. So I'm so very excited about this week's show because my special guest is Dr. Norm Robillard. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Norm Robillard is founder of the Digestive Health Institute and he's a leading gut health expert. He specializes in functional gastrointestinal disorders like heartburn, acid reflux, GERD, LPR, IBS, etc., SIBO, and dysbiosis, helping his clients transition from drug and antibiotic based treatments to the fast track diet and other holistic solutions. The fast track diet was presented at the digestive. Disease Week meeting in 2014 to give gastroenterologists another treatment option for SIBO and related conditions. His award-winning Fast Track Diet mobile app and Fast Track, Diet, uh, Fast Track Digestion book series make it easy to try this approach. Dr. Norm, thank you so much for being back on <laughs> this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show.
2: Thanks for having me once again, Dr. Carey. Yeah, How are you?
1: I'm really good. I'll I'll have to dig out our other interviews. So for the listeners out there, I'll I'll make sure to dig out our other interviews and put those links in the podcast notes so you can listen uh, to my other interviews with Dr. Norm. So I think, Dr. Norm, as we get started, let's just like very briefly give a general overview of SIBO. I think that's a good place to start. And then we'll kind of get into difficult cases and how to figure them out.
2: Sure, that sounds like a good place to start, and and, and those topics are covered in some of the other um, uh, talks we've had. Uh, but yeah, basically, um, SIBO is a form of dysbiosis, right? We we have a lot of uh, bacteria in our large intestine, right? some 100 trillion bacteria that do all of these different great things for us. Uh, you know, help train the immune system when we're young and when we're growing and developing, uh, produce vitamins and short-chain fatty acids that nourish us, um, and also protect us against, uh, you know, invading pathogens. They do all these great things, but the real reason we've evolved with them is is to survive if we don't have a lot of food, right, because they process these um undigestible uh, complex carbohydrates that we normally wouldn't get any energy from and they produce fats. And so that's why we've evolved with them. Um, But the way our intestines uh, are set up is uh, most of these bacteria are in the large bowel where that fermentation takes place and where those fats are produced. So we don't have normally that many bacteria in the small intestine much fewer numbers, and almost none in the early part of the small intestine, where the villi and microvilli are, and complex and delicate, you know, organelles and processes where we're completing the breakdown of food, so that the fats can turn and uh, be turned into fatty acids, the proteins to amino acids, and the complex carbohydrates to sugars, the ones that we can digest, and then all of those go into our bloodstream. So what's left is what the bacteria begin to ferment in the, uh, you know, mid to lower end of the small intestine, the simple sugars and so forth. Um, And then most of that fermentation happens in the large bowel. So if we have too many bacteria in the small intestine um, and the cutoff is uh, loosely defined as more than 100,000 bacteria per mil in the small intestine, then that's technically considered SIBO. Uh, But as I said, it's a loose definition because we have more bacteria towards the distal end and almost none at the beginning. But when you do get a pathological number of bacteria in the small intestine, especially the early part, they really can impact our own digestion. Uh, They produce proteases that can, uh, you know, damage the enzymes that our own body's releasing at the tips of our microvilli. They can cause a lot of inflammation and basically they wreak havoc and and disrupt our our digestion. So that's the, the problem in a nutshell, when too many bacteria start proliferating in the early part of the small intestine. And those can be bacteria f- that normally reside in the small intestine, staph and strep and other lactobacilli. But also bacteria can move in from the large intestine. So, uh, And some of this is work is based on direct culture studies. So E. coli, you know, strains like Klebsiella, uh, Bacteroidetes species, Clostridia, you know, and different Firmicutes. So um, anyway, things can go from bad to worse.
1: <laughs> and so I think what's happening is as the public understands more and more about gut health and the microbiome and leaky gut and gut infections and SIBO and they're seeking treatment, we're starting to see more and more complex, difficult cases. At, at least that's how I'm I'm feeling in my practice. <laughs> I get these really tough cases that come in. In fact, I just had uh, no, I just had a man come in um, last week, and in his mid to late forties, bloated all the time. Basically, the healthier he tries to eat, the worse he feels, and uh, and he's very limited in what he can eat at this point. And I would say, probably five years ago, I wouldn't have known what to do. Um, but as I was talking with him, I, I thought, OK, he probably has gut infections, multiple gut infections. We'll start by doing some testing and then treat accordingly. And then I was also suspicious of probably a histamine issue as well. But but let's kind of talk about, you know, as difficult as these difficult cases come in, um, how do you kind of go through that process of figuring it, figuring it out?
2: Mm, mm Yeah. And, and again, just to remind your listeners is that I work as a consulting microbiologist. So I work with people and spend a lot of time with them and spend hours offline researching this situation to come up with a plan that they can bring to their own doctor to take it from there. So I'm not diagnosing uh, or treating disease myself. What I'm doing is coming up with a plan of what I think is going on. And I'll provide people with an extensive write-up of my thoughts that they can take to their doctor so that's how my practice works um but what i do i mean it's a great question the way you phrased it but i personally i keep in mind a couple of things i i think about what are all of the SIBO related conditions first and and we've talked about that before and and i think about them in terms of the numbers too Because more people are likely to have the ones that affect a larger number of people, like acid reflux. You know, my my research on acid reflux has connected that with SIBO and dysbiosis. There's a lot of evidence for that. I've written a couple of books on it. But that involves 60 million people. And you've also got the the LPR folks, the laryngopharyngeal reflux, which is a, a subtle but very persistent and troublesome uh, version of reflux right with you may have a, a persistent cough or a sore throat and it's th- very challenging condition but so reflux you're looking at 60 million people irritable bowel syndrome 50 million and if you lumped all of the autoimmune diseases right that are connected to SIBO via leaky gut if you lump them all together you have somewhere around 50 million and uh, so those are some of the big ones Um, type 2 diabetes, 30 million, asthma, 26 million, and asthma is connected via reflux. Uh, Hypothyroidism is 20 million, and then it starts going down, you know, fibromyalgia and liver disease, 5 million, Uh, interstitial cystitis, 3 to 8 million, celiac, 3, Sjogren's, 3 million, Uh, RA is just over a million, and you can work your way down all the way to, you know, some very rare conditions like Addison's disease, right? Autoimmune condition that affects the um, adrenals. And that's only 16,000 people, but I worked with a woman that had it. So they are out there. Um, So I think about these um, SIBO-related conditions, first of all. And then the other thing I think about is the potential um, underlying causes. And this is an active area of research. But there's a lot of those. Uh, You know, one of the big ones we hear about all the time is motility. We also hear about stomach acidity, any kind of liver or pancreas problems, uh, celiac, Crohn's, you know, diabetes. So some of these, um, you know, they're considered both conditions that are associated, but also considered potential underlying causes because of some of the things they do. Um, You know, diabetes can affect motility because of uh, damage to the vagus nerve. At least that's the, the ongoing idea there. Uh, scleroderma and, and Crohn's both can cause scarring in the intestine, slow down motility. Um, all of these different drugs, PPIs, pain meds, antibiotics, those can have an effect. Uh, various immune deficiencies, general dysbiotic uh, gut conditions. In fact, that's what you talked about, right? And actually looking, doing some stool testing and seeing what's in there, uh, even though it won't measure SIBO. It's still good to see what what are your uh, microbiological balances in in a stool sample, and testing like the GI effects test is, I think, one of the best, can really get at some of those things. Uh, GI infections, right, and those can be bacterial viral parasites, and and some of those can tie back to motility. A new one is this ileocecal valve pressure difference that we find in people that have SIBO, Uh, and a a term that i coined a few years ago was lebo large intestinal bacterial overgrowth you know what's that all about and there's some evidence that 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 may be a factor as well in these conditions and one that i focus on is just consuming more um, fermentable carbohydrates than your body uh, can process so that's those are the things that i have in the back of my mind when i talk to people and and it it's reflected in the types of things I'm interested in, and we'll have a long, at least the initial uh, meeting I have with people can be 45 minutes to an hour, where I, I have these things in the back of my mind, and I start talking to people about things like weight loss and weight gain. You know, is your weight stable? Are you losing weight? Can you not keep weight? Are you, you, know, are you gaining too much weight? Um, really getting a detailed picture of their symptoms and a lot of times people might you know we have a three-page questionnaire when i consult with people so i get a lot of information up front but sometimes they might put a either list just their conditions or maybe a couple of symptoms but when you really get talking to them about it oh they ha- they have a lot of symptoms and i like to see which ones are the most troublesome or the most severe uh, I also ask people about any past surgeries, especially abdominal surgeries. You know, because you've got uh, a real possibility of it having some scarring or adhesions. Uh, I ask people about liver problems, any kind of issues with alcohol abuse or or hepatitis viruses B or C uh, can be a big issue, right? Because your liver is very much involved in in digestion, production of bile. It's involved in your blood sugar and so many other um, areas. Uh, sometimes uh, cancer can be an issue and sometimes people don't even know they have it. So that's something that should be discussed. Uh, pancreas problems, because that's the the organ that's producing the amylase, lipase and proteases, right, that help you with this digestive process we talked about. Um, and there's one good test for that, by the way. You mentioned the stool testing, but if you throw elastase in there, that's a good one because elastase is also an enzyme produced from the pancreas, but it's very tough and stable, and so you can measure it in a stool sample. And so what you're getting at there is, is my pancreas okay? Because otherwise, maybe you're not producing enough amylase or protease or lipase. So pancreas issues, uh, any kind of food episodes of food poisoning, GI infections, Uh, um i'll even talk to people about where they travel to if they've been you know uh subtropical areas africa cambodia vietnam some people will bring back a parasite giardia and so forth that they can have for years and and not even know about it Uh, i also talk about any kind of existing diagnoses people have and that the testing history even standard blood panels and looking at electrolytes and vitamins and minerals medicines and supplements another huge area uh, bowel habits of course uh, and their current diet what what are they eating you know it, and and during the process i'll usually recommend about three sessions with people i work with and we keep track of their um they keep a diet log every day and and, and along with a symptom log. Uh, but what are their dietary preferences? I've worked with people when I first started doing this years ago and um, made some recommendations. And, and they wrote back and said, by the way, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> so it's like, I now make sure that I know that kind of stuff uh, up front. And just some general health and well-being. Um, You know, how are you sleeping, stress levels, exercise? So I think by having a good discussion in in these areas um, that you can start to get a picture of where you need to focus.
1: Fantastic. So that's a really wonderful overview. And then as you're talking to your clients, what are some of the kind of red flags that come up as far as it makes you think about something like, histamine intolerance as an example
2: yeah and and, you know it's interesting that that most of the areas that i've i've learned about um well originally SIBO and and dysbiosis and so forth that and and i've told you that story it was had to do with my own chronic acid reflux many years ago and when i realized there was a dietary connection and a connection between uh uh, how well you digested carbs and bacterial overgrowth and, and gases and reflux and that theory that I came up with, that was my entry point. But from there, a lot of these areas that I've really started to focus on and study have come from people that have come to me with these problems. And so um, even though I may have only you know booked somebody for three sessions and maybe one 45-minute session, a couple of 30-minute sessions, if it's an area that I don't know about, that it's not an area that I'm really solid on, um, I take that on myself to, you know, I'm not going to bill them from my, you know, education. So I'll take it on myself to really learn about that area. And so I recently did have someone that was convinced that she had histamine intolerance. And in the past, I've kind of leaned on uh, the connection between the ability of gut bacteria to produce histamine, right? Because many of them, if not most of them do, uh, because it's histamine is closely related to histidine, the amino acid that's in all proteins. And so when you have a uh, bacterial overgrowth, you will be producing more histamine. In fact, there was a recent study, um, maybe 2017 or so, showing that if you reduced fermentable carbohydrates in the diet, you could knock histamine levels in the gut down by 800 percent so that was one study and a little tidbit and i was kind of leaning on that well if you follow the fast track diet and you really reduce these fermentable carbohydrates you're going to have less histamine anyway and there's a reason that i wasn't uh that focused on uh histamine intolerance um a couple of reasons right one was that the symptoms of histamine intolerance. Uh, some of them are that you might think of more along the lines of, okay, this could be histamine, it, you know, flushing and and differences in a regular heartbeat, changes in blood pressure, you know, dizziness, fatigue, some of those insomnia, um, headaches. There's been some good work done on those, especially itchy eyes. Uh, you know, uh, skin irritations, you know, or the pruritus, they call it hives. Um, though, there's been some good work connecting some of those symptoms specifically to, um, to histamine, and we can, we can talk about some of those studies. But a lot of people come in thinking they have histamine intolerance, but they're complaining about the GI symptoms, right? Gas, bloating, diarrhea or constipation, nausea, vomiting, cramps. And those, right, as we both know from our discussions, are also symptoms of, like, IBS and SIBO. So do they have IBS and just think they have histamine intolerance? Or do they have, um, you know, IBS and SIBO and all of these bacteria are producing more histamine? And so they have both. So which is it? So it, it as you get into it, I think it's a little bit confusing Um, so i started doing you know i took it on myself that i really needed to learn you know more about this and so first of all um what if you're trying to tease these apart what are the causes of histamine having excessive histamine right in your system and those are well worked out right Um, and and with the enzymes that break down histamine you can either you can have a deficiency of those or something that inhibits those. So the big one is this, you know, diamine oxidase, right, TMO. That's the main enzyme in the body that breaks down histamine. So if you have a deficiency, or if you have something that's inhibiting that enzyme, yeah, you could build up higher histamine levels. Uh, The same goes with um, an intracellular enzyme called histamine and methyltransferase, HNMT. So that breaks down histamine inside of the cells. And you can also have a deficiency or an inhibition of that enzyme, and two other causes, right? Just excessive histamine in the diet, or as I mentioned, a lot of histamine being produced by bacteria um, in your gut. So that's one thing to look for. And of course, there there are there are diagnostic measures kind of built around some of these things, right? Um, if you have symptoms consistent with histamine intolerance, right, that's the first clue. If it isn't SIBO or if it's SIBO plus histamine intolerance, okay, uh, you can actually measure this DAO. You do have low serum levels of that. And uh, and by the way, in this research I'm doing, I have my own questions as I'm working through this. Like, okay, low serum DAO levels, okay, what does that mean? Because a lot of what we, we want is high histamine levels in the gut. But you're measuring this in a serum. So how do those connect? So um, that's an open question for me. Um, it's one area I'm still looking at. Um, if you have higher levels of histamine and it can be measured in different ways, you can you can measure histamine and other amines, right? It's not the only one in, in urine and by other measurements. There's a there's a skin prick test where you literally apply, you know, a low percentage histamine solution uh, in a skin prick test and see if you get a reaction. Um, and then also the big one a lot of people talk about is um, in, an improvement of symptoms on a histamine restricted diet and so I've uh, so as I mentioned i ha- I've been reviewing a lot of different studies in this area which are kind of interesting but at the same time I've moved ahead um, creating an approach that is both low Fp right that's the way that The fast-track diet measures fermentable carbohydrates. So it's low FP, so it's going to limit. Um, Limit but not eliminate. Lactose, fructose, resistant starch, fiber, and sugar alcohols, right? Those five using this FP calculation. So what is a diet that limits those and it limits histamine? So I've already put together that that I can use with my clients. But at the same time, I have questions about how... Um, histamine is being measured in these foods it's really interesting and and other people and maybe some of your listeners will have some really good tips and they can they can write in uh, in the comment section Uh, but other than you know limiting you know uh, highly processed foods you know fermented you know some of the things that we know about for, for sure like Uh, you know canned dried anchovies fish sauce and some of these things fermented vegetables when you just talk about there's lists and lists around on all of these different foods that are low in histamine right or, or high in histamine and when i was looking at some of those i there was just this nagging question in the back of my mind through the whole thing was where is this data coming from who's measuring this and I've talked to some people with some expertise in this area, and, and some of that data is um, asking people if they have symptoms when they eat these foods. And so I'm just not satisfied with how foods are being, other than, you know, some of the obvious ones, um, you know, if you're not having fresh or uh, fresh, quick frozen frozen meats or fish or, you know, because when bacteria grow on meat or fish, they produce these histamines, right? That's where they're coming from. So. But other than some of those obvious ones, uh, scrombroid fish, right, is another one because there's a lot of histidine in their bodies that can be converted to histidine. When you talk about these other ones, who's doing that measuring? So <laughs> I'm still looking into that myself. I don't know. Have you, have you heard anything about that?
1: No, that's actually yeah. something that I've never even considered. You bring up an excellent point.
2: Yeah, like when somebody says broccoli is low, okay? How? Who? How'd you measure that? And when you look at some other ones that are considered, you know, uh, uh, high. I mean, some of the starches are considered low. Um, uh, certain nuts and seeds are considered high, um, and then of course there's all these different foods that you have to watch out because they might be, you know, in, uh, inhibiting DAO enzyme. And so there's a lot of uh, tidbits that. It's put out there as information, but I just, I really never feel comfortable personally moving forward with something in my consulting program if I don't understand the basis. Where is this coming from? So (laughs) it's a work in progress.
1: Yeah, and I've also had many patients come in and they've tried a low histamine diet and found that it didn't give them any symptom relief. And so oftentimes I feel patients are, they're on the right track. They're oftentimes, mm. they're on the right track, they're doing the right things, but there's something, there's still something that's contributing to their symptoms that we just have to dig deeper and figure out.
2: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I also have a, a list of all of these foods that you're supposed to avoid. And, and I, and the reason I question how the, uh, high histamine level was arrived at is because some of those are low fp foods and i hate taking anything off the plate for people that if i don't really know the reason like one of those was pumpkin pumpkin's high in histamine why why is that you know would it be the same as a is a like a butternut squash why? Because they're very similar vegetables. So where's that data coming from? Because pumpkin is actually pretty low FP. Eggplant's another one. Soy in the form of uh, tofu, very low carb, low fermentable carbs. a great go-to food for a lot of people. Avocado's another one. It's got some fiber, but it's a low carb vegetable Um so why? Where is this data coming from? Because I'm okay taking it off. The list spinach is another one. Okay, spinach is a big one. Maybe there's some data for that one. Um, but that's the point where I'm at now. I want to chase some of that down because I don't like eliminating things from people's diet and saying, "Well, you shouldn't use, you shouldn't eat this." Why? You know, I, I need to have a reason when they ask. Um, the fermented veggies, I can understand that one um the the aged cheese and it's terrible in a way because those are good go to low fp foods they have very low carbohydrate contents they're higher in protein and fat they're wonderful but if they if somebody is reacting to histamine um, they may have to go for a while at least for a few months and see um how people do and sure tuna mackerel sardines, anchovies, herring bluefish. So those are supposedly well-known scrombroid fish that have a lot of histidine and potentially a lot of histamine. I'm okay with that, but what about all of the other fish? I, I just want, I really wish there was a more definitive guide that you could go on PubMed and you could find you know peer-reviewed table and here's, here's the measurements and here's the parts per million of histamine. It would just, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that gives me a, a better comfort level. Uh, but as I said, I'm really just uh, starting to get into this area to really put together a an advanced protocol that's that's data data based.
1: So is that something that's just in progress right now? As far as you're taking your fast track program and modifying it for the histamine component, is that something you're working on right now, or is that done?
2: Yeah, well, in other words, it's nothing that I plan on, um, you know, writing a book on or anything at the moment. Um, uh, It's an interesting idea. But it is more just in this was one single person I was working with. This was really bugging her. And uh, um, she pushed me out of my comfort zone on it. And I did it for her. So um, she's kind of, uh, you know, I gave it to her and I said, you know, I'm, I'm just starting to really look into this. And here's my first stab at this uh, low histamine, low FP diet. Uh, I still have questions of my own, um, but she's researching it herself. So I said, look at this and tell me what you think. And are there any conflicts or contradictions with what you know or understand? Um, So I've just shared it with one person so far to get some feedback on it.
1: Yeah. So you brought up a lot of really great points. And this is something that actually patients complain about all the time when they're when they're researching histamine and food lists and because there's a lot of con- confusion and some foods on some lists are okay. And some foods on other lists, the same food is bad and mm-hmm. um, they get really frustrated <laughs> with that. They get
2: caught in the middle with yeah. all of us practitioners yeah. saying different things. I know. And,
1: and of course, you know, like you said, who's making the list and, and how are they doing that? So, so ultimately we need to have that knowledge
2: yeah, because there's there's no reason we can't get it. But, of course, somebody has to pay for it. You can do the testing, but somebody has to get organized about it and uh, get a grant and, and just yeah pull all these foods and just say, okay, what really is in these foods? Maybe it's been done, and I'm just not well-read enough to know where that data is. But I look, I've looked around. I can't find it so far.
1: Yeah, so I would say in my own personal practice, a lot of the histamine tests – are not available to us in Canada because uh, they're highly specialized tests and they're only available at the research level. And so we, we're limited in what we can actually test. And so when I have a patient that I am suspicious that, oh, this might be uh, something having to do with histamine intolerance. This might have something to do with mast cell activation syndrome. Um Basically, at that point is I'll explain what my thoughts are to the patient and and put together a trial of treatment for maybe six, eight weeks, really addressing it aggressively, trying to lower histamine and mast cell um, issues and and see because we because we don't have any tests that we can run. And a lot of these tests are not conclusive anyways, um, that we just do a trial of therapy and, hey, if the patient gets better, we're onto something there. So sometimes that's <laughs> it also. So for the listeners out there, especially with really difficult cases, sometimes you just have to start and just kind of work through it. And as you work through it, you're, you're, in a sense, making progress that you're ruling other things out, but, but it, it is also just a process that you have to go through.
2: No, I, I completely agree. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, even with low FP placebo, I'll, I'll, um, I'll give people a diet plan that reduces these fermentable carbohydrates and, and behaviors and practices that optimizes digestion, again, to reduce the amount of fermentable carbohydrates, potentially overfeeding gut bacteria. And I'll do it without, you know, having them do a breath test or any other kind of test or stool test because it might just be that simple. That doing this is going to get break that cycle and get your SIBO under control, and also the behaviors and practices: eating slowly, chewing well, uh, you know, uh, choosing low FP foods, not refrigerating your starches, you know, because they can build up resistance. Stuff. Some of these behaviors, and just between some diet changes and behaviors, without spending another you know five or eight hundred dollars on these tests, is, is enough. So I think sometimes that is a good sense, but. I find people are different. Some people, um, they don't mind. They even enjoy getting a whole bunch of tests and they want to know and they want, and that's great. And I'll support that. But other people, they might be on a budget. In um, in the symptoms, I think are enough to say, okay, this is almost certainly a SIBO or bacterial overgrowth. And the reason I say that is because when when you look at least what's in the literature for the. Uh, prevalence of histamine intolerance, it's somewhere down around 1%, whereas the SIBO and the dysbiosis, that's up around 10 to 15%. So chances are, if you have those GI symptoms we talked about, it is going to be a SIBO uh, fermentation, bacterial fermentation issue, 10 times, uh, you know, 10 times out of, uh, uh, nine, 9 times out of 10. But, it might be the histamine thing or the histamine feeding into it. So I, I agree with you. And, and why don't we just while we're on it, just for your listeners, is to kind of go through some of these uh, histamine-related uh, conditions, right? You mentioned uh, mastocytosis, right? Well, that's kind of a weird word. What is it? Well, it's when the mast cells, right? Because you have you have we talked about histamine being produced in your gut and DAO in your gut and so forth, but also these immune cells, mast cells, they have histamine that they release whenever there's an inflammatory condition or an allergy reaction, right? But this is an abnormal amount where these mast cells accumulate, either in the skin or internal organs or the bone marrow or or small intestine. Um, and so there's different tests for that. There's a skin biopsy that actually look for the presence of these mast cells. There's blood and urine tests, bone scans, you know, GI workups. It's genetic um, testing and so forth. So it's Again, it's kind of complicated. I'm just getting into it myself. Uh, And also just understanding that what's the difference between mastocytosis and mast cell activation syndrome, you know, MCAS. Uh, And and from my understanding so far, is that refers to patients with mast cell activation, but even potentially in the absence of like full-blown mastocytosis. So that's what I'm gathering so far. There is a measurable proliferation in mast cells, but it might... Fall short of mastocytosis, and then we haven't talked about POTS, right? This postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. When when you stand up and your heart rate increases, you know, 30 beats per minute, and your blood pressure falls. What is it? Well, one third of people that have this have this MCAS, and uh, especially when the uh, the BPM change is associated with like flushing. And so there's all kinds of advanced diagnostic uh, criteria for that, histamine, but also prostaglandins and leukotrienes and tryptase. So it gets a little complicated. Um, But on that note, people might want to look at a recent case study that was done by uh, Dr. Weinstock, Dr. Leonard Weinstock, uh, just this year. I was just taking a look at it. Um, Very interesting that he was treating POTS. He and, and his collaborators were treating POTS and MCAS with naltrexone, immunoglobulins, and, and antibiotics. So, um, you know, I haven't really dug into that yet, but it's new and it's just kind of interesting. If somebody's struggling with this, if it's another, I think, avenue to look at um, just to see what's what's going on.
1: So I guess in the, in the end, there is always a reason the symptoms are happening. And even with difficult cases, that it, it's a process of just trying to figure it out and that just takes time. Um, and that... As you know, Norm, the longer we're in practice, the better we get at these things.
2: Yeah, well, you know, people people put you to work. That's the thing. I do. I really feel a responsibility. If somebody has very, uh, feels very strongly about something, or has a test result or a diagnosis, and it's something I don't understand, well, I I just it's something I take on myself because otherwise, would you know, what are you doing?
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: So um, yeah, and and it's really a good exercise anyway. Because for us, we, we grow and learn, and and let's face it, with thousands of new papers coming out all the time, uh, like this uh, you had mentioned um, when we, I think before we uh, got on air here, the, this uh, I've signed up to do a presentation at this um, integrative SIBO uh, summit coming up in in April out in uh, Seattle, Washington, and I <laughs> I picked a topic that I don't know the answers to yet, so I've and I have to really do a lot of work over the next six weeks because the slide deck is due at the end of uh, January. But it's on, you know. Some, uh, for instance, we we all know that diets that limit fermentable carbohydrates, uh, you know, succeeding in the clinic. That's why all of the diets that, that work have, you know, these they, the same thing in common: they're limiting fermentable carbohydrates. Whether it's specific carb diet, FODMAP, Fast Track, Elemental diet, low carb. And so some of the questions I've posed that I'm going to need to go and speak to are, is, are these diets healthy? You know, because there's a lot of controversy about that. You know, I'm not feeding my gut bacteria. They don't have enough fiber. I'm really worried about that. Will I get colon cancer? And so I took that topic on and I'm, and then I thought, well, I'll just, you know, read some of the papers and put together some notes on this. But there is so much being published and it's just a massive amount of information and so how do you wade through that in, in, a, in a way that's comprehensive enough focusing on the important studies and coming away with some kind of uh, a defendable consensus view um, so you know i well, think that, just t- that sounds like a lot of fun
1: norm that'll keep you busy <laughs> <laughs> and and we look forward to whatever yeah. conclusions you draw from that because those are valid questions that a lot of people have yeah, uh, and this one it's for um, uh,
2: doctors and practitioners. It's it's not for the general public. This particular meeting, so I did want something that really kind of stretched me, and, and was something that was one way or the other that I hope will contribute to you know a better understanding of this. Because a lot of uh, a lot of doctors now are changing their ways and they're really prioritizing diet. It's amazing. There was a um, not a review. There was um, a recent questionnaire that was um, given to 1,500 gastroenterologists. And I was reading a summary of that from Dr. William Che. He's up there at University of Michigan. He was commenting on this. And one thing they came away from, and these are gastroenterologists, 91% of them that were interviewed felt the diet was as good or better than medical therapies for IBS and by association SIBO, right? That seems like a big change to me. A lot of people, you know, they, they tell stories. I went to my doctor, all he did was put me on a PPI or he put me on, you know, an antibiotic or a different, you know, a pain medicine or an antidepressant medicine. But 91% are saying they feel the diet is at least as good or better than the, than the traditional medical therapies. So I really feel like things are starting to change.
1: It's good. It's good that we're, we've hit that point. Norm, how can our listeners find out more about you?
2: Uh, sure. Well, they can go, always go to digestivehealthinstitute.org. That's where you know, we have some blogs and various articles. We also have an extensive Q&A. We took a year and just started answering everybody's questions about the fast-track diet. And uh, putting those together. So that's a great archive. They can also go to the Fast Tracked TRACT, Fast Tracked Diet official Facebook group. We're up to close to about um, 9,000 members now, and we have some super admins that have been on the diet. Uh, for years, they've been supporting the, the approach, and now they're admins on the page. And, and people uh, that are gaining expertise in the diet and using it themselves, they're on there helping each other, sharing recipes. So um, that's a good resource for people. It's searchable. You can go on there. If you have a particular issue, you can search. And what are all, you know, what are vegetarians saying? You can search and find those posts. So it's, um, it's a very positive, uh, upbeat group. We really frown on complaining when we're more kind of action-minded.
1: Norm, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been another awesome interview.
2: Thank you, Dr. Carey. I really appreciate it, and I love talking to you. Thank you.
1: All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Norman Robillard. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carey Drisga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone.
0: You've been listening to the Functional Medicine radio show with your host Dr. Kerry Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc.